going to come and read God's Word just now, and our first reading is from the Gospel, and reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 9 through to verse 18. These words, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh, and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one whom I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is the close, in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Amen. And now we're going to read from Psalm 85, but I want to do something a little bit different today. Uh, it's a bit of an experiment. What I've done is I've printed off the words of the psalm, and you should be able to have had a copy around you as, as we read this together. Now, the, the words will still be on the screen, so if you, if you prefer that, that's, that's there for you. But what I'm, what I'm slightly aware of is sometimes when words are on screens, which is a great innovation, it almost becomes that they're there to illustrate the sermon. Now, here's the thing. The statisticians, statisticians tell me that 85% of what I preach you will forget. That's on a good day. I have more confidence in God's Word than I do in preaching. So, what I've done today, just as an experiment, is given you the words to have before you. So that what you take out today is the words of God in that psalm. And perhaps through the week, it'll give you something to have a, a, a look at and reflect on. If you're watching this on YouTube just now, pause it and go and grab a Bible and, and find the psalm yourself. Um, maybe it'll encourage you to bring God's Word to church with you. Bring a, a copy of, of the Bible. Uh, the two reasons for that, sometimes when, you, when you're hearing a sermon, it helps that you can, you can look at the text and see where it's gone. The other reason is, if the sermon's really boring, it gives you a book you can legitimately read instead of listening. So, there is always that as well. So, we're going to read God's Word together from this psalm. Psalm 85. Lord, you, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. 
You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and, and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to His people, His faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him. His glory may dwell in His land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before Him and prepares the way for His steps. Amen. We come to God's Word, and we're just, what I'm going to do is, is go through the psalm, but my hope as we do this is that it will enable you to take the words of the psalm away and reflect on them yourself, because we have confidence that God's Word can do all it accomplishes. Begins, Lord, you showed favor to your land. And we might equally translate this, Lord, you once showed favor to your land. And what the psalmist is, is starting the psalm by doing is he's recalling the good old days, the good old days the favorable times, the times of real spiritual blessing in the past. Um, does anyone here ever have a conversation about the good old days? Yeah? Or, or hear a conversation about the good old days? You know, those old days that were really good when I was young. I'm getting to the stage I can say that now, and it's credible. When I was young, when people were happier, when children did what they told, and music was music. You know, I, 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 to tell a story, I, I, was, I was once in the car um, when I was in my 20s, mid-20s, uh, and I was taking a bunch of teenagers um, to a concert. And as we were in the car, and this date, said that they said, can we put our tape on? And they put on a tape of their music. Now, these guys were only about nine years younger than me at the time, and they put on the tape of their music, and on it went. And I said it. That's not music. That's a noise. And I'd no sooner said it than I realized. And that's what my granny said about the Beatles. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. We remember the good old days and everything has gone downhill since then. And churches are particularly good at that, aren't they? You get folk together and you start to talk about church and someone says, oh, I remember when there were 500 lads in the Anchor Boys. And I remember when there was standing room only at communion. And we remember with, often with rose-tinted spectacles, or with a wistfulness, with a nostalgia, the past. And you think it's just the elderly that do that, or I used to. 
Then I realized I was doing it myself, but not just that. You sit with children, and the children will say, it's not as good this year, because last year there was more of my friends came. They're doing the same thing. Put it back. And it was better. It was better. Now, I used to knock it and just think it was a bad thing, but I've come to realize that often what people are doing is they're looking back to times that were spiritually significant for them. Times where they really felt close to God and, and, and they somehow yearn for that again. And that's not a bad thing. But it comes with a problem. It's good to celebrate the past, but often we're viewing it with rose-colored spectacles, aren't we? About the good old days. And it dooms us into a cycle where it doesn't matter what we do in the present, it's never going to be as good. There's a, there's a point in the Old Testament where God's people come back to the land after the exile, and they've worked very hard, and they rebuild the temple, and they think this is great, and then the old folk go, the old temple was bigger. And that sense that always brings a discontent. And the, one of the problems with it is it makes us unable to say what is God doing new now, in this day, in this month? What is God wanting for us in this place? Because we're too busy hankering back. And our only solutions when we do that are, well, we need to get back to, we need to put back, rather than say, actually, we need to look anew at what God is doing. So the first of these verses seems, oh, there you are. I remember the old days when snap, crackle, and pop were sounds that came from my cereal and not my body. I, I like that. I wish there was a way to know you were good in the old days before you were in the good old days before you actually left them. That's the rose-colored te- spectacles, isn't it? But to go back to this 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 psalm, as the psalmist remembers, he is looking at the past. He remembers the fortunes of Jacob. Now, Jacob, well, when you know the story, Jacob, Jacob and Esau, and, uh, and Jacob had lots of sons and you know, all the rest of it. But actually, that's not really what he's talking about, the person of Jacob. Jacob changed his name to Israel. So when, when the Bible talks about the people of Jacob, it, it, it's not actually talking about that. It's talking about the whole story of Israel. You got it? The family story of Israel, right from the time of Abraham, right up until the end of the Old Testament. And what he's doing is he, is, he, is he thinking and recalling this story, the story of the patriarchs wandering, the story of slavery in Egypt, the story of Moses and the Exodus, the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho, the story of the judges of Gideon and Samuel, the story of David, the story of Solomon, the story of the, the prophets and the story of the exile and Nehemiah and everything. All of that is coming to mind. But here is what the psalmist is doing as he remembers that. He's not saying, oh, it was brilliant then. In the old days. It was fantastic being slaves in Egypt. We loved being in exile or any of these things and being invaded by Midianites and Gibeonites and all the rest of it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, as I remember, I remember this. I remember how good God was in all those different circumstances. Indeed, if he was recalling the story of Israel, and, and that's alluded to here, he was actually remembering that the people had been pretty rotten, actually. You know, did, did you ever, when you, when you read the Old Testament, think, oh, for goodness sake, here they go again with their idolatry. 
Here they go again with deserting God. Here they go again, it's going to be a disaster. Did they not learn from the previous 19 chapters that this was not a good idea? But the Old Testament, you see, isn't the story of the good old days. It's the story about the good God that was there through all the different ages and all the different times. God blesses the people. The pattern is there. The people turn away from Him and ignore Him. Things turn into a disaster but God is always ready to forgive and restore. The Old Testament isn't the glory days of Israel. It's the graciousness of the God who kept forgiving. And you see that in these verses, don't you? In those days, you showed favor. You restored Jacob. You forgave his iniquity. You covered his sins. You set aside your wrath. The people were pretty rotten, as I remember. But God kept forgiving and kept with them. And that's the story that the psalmist remembers. You know, as we remember stories of the past, that's what we need to focus on. The amazing news of God's faithfulness throughout the generations. You know, what's the song that we used to sing in Sunday school? Well, I did anyway, maybe not this one. We, we had a good Sunday school. Yeah, remember in the old days. Yesterday, today, forever. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. You remember it? We might need to sing that some week, won't we? The problem is that we sometimes mishear it. It doesn't say, yesterday, today, forever, the church is the same. All may change, but the kirk never. And it doesn't say, yesterday, today, forever, I'm the same. All may change, but I'm not changing. The problem is when we don't realize that the faithfulness that we depend on is Jesus, then we begin to cling on to the other things. We need to have the solidity of the church that doesn't change or the solidity of our lives that doesn't change or anything else. But when we realize the faithfulness of God, and that's what the psalmist does in these first verses. Here's how one commentator put it. It's not pining for past glories which are often an optical illusion, but remembering past mercies. This is realistic. It's also stimulating. It leads to prayers rather than dreams. And we see that in verses 4 to 7, where he starts to pray, Restore us again, Lord, God our Savior. What you did back then in bringing the people back to you, do it now in us. Now, I'm not going to go into the historical setting of this psalm because actually we don't know. Sometime in the history of Israel. It could be any time. But what the psalmist is saying, which is very clear, is this. He says, right now it feels spiritually dead. When, God, when, he, when he prays to God, will you revive us? He's actually saying, Lord, will you bring out the defibrillator? <laughs> because we're dead. And will you give some life to this because it just looks completely spiritually broken. Now, I don't know where you are just now, but I can guarantee if you've been walking with God for any length of time, you will recall times when you felt completely spiritually broken. You could remember times that you were closer to God, and that's part of this looking back. 
but you could only find yourself in a place where it seemed that there was no pulse. And here's the psalmist's prayer. I can remember lots of those times and how you brought me back to life again when I turned to you. Will you do it again? Just like the history of Israel is that God kept bringing the people back. Kept forgiving them. Will you do it again? Will you do it now? And that's the prayer. And that's the confidence he has with God. And he's asking these rhetorical questions. Will God be angry forever? Will he? No. Will God fail to revive us? No. Do it again, Lord. And that's the whole story of the Bible. How God takes broken folk in bad situations and turns it around again. Slaves brought out of Egypt. Rebels brought out of the wilderness. People who went to idols brought back again and again and again and again till they were exiled in Babylon and he brought them back from them with forgiveness. That's the whole book of Isaiah. It's the very nature of God. And as we go into the New Testament, we find it again and again, don't we? The shepherd looking for the lost sheep. The woman hunting for the lost coin. The father searching for the lost son. And he sends his son Jesus that we should not perish, but we should have everlasting life. There is a sense that every sermon that you've ever heard has been saying the same thing. It might feel like that sometimes, but it has. It's been extending to you through the Word of God that invitation to the God who wants you to turn back to Him and He will embrace you and forgive you and revive you and restore you yet again. We fall down, we turn away, we are distracted by the world, but He keeps loving, keeps forgiving, keeps picking us up, keeps waking us up, keeps welcoming us back. And the psalmist knows all of that. You know, one thing that's clear here is what the psalmist is aware of is how far he's fallen. God has a reason to be angry, to be not pleased. And as you read the Old Testament, I don't know about you, but I sometimes think, oh, for goodness sake, Lord, what, did you not just reach the point of think, forget it? Pick a different people. But then as I look at me and I look at you, I have the same question sometimes, don't we? Lord, why? Sometimes a sermon can make us feel guilty. Have you ever come to, to God's Word or, or to church and it's made you feel guilty? All the things you're not doing. All the ways you're not walking with the Lord. All the prayers that you're not saying. Who's felt guilty in church before? Right. Those that haven't, next week, okay? <laughs> And there is a sense that that's right. God's Word should convict us. It should make us feel, hey, there's more, and I'm not, I'm not living up to it. But the problem with guilt is that sometimes it's right to feel guilty, but guilt tells us there's a problem and that we're on the wrong path. But if it stops there, guilt is completely disabilitating. It stops us doing anything about it. Think of it this way. Have you ever had the scenario where you know you should have done something? It's maybe visiting someone. You know you should have done it. And you feel guilty. 
And because you feel guilty, it might be that that motivates you to do the thing, but it might be the opposite. It might be that you just avoid the person because it makes you feel guilty. You've been there? You know you should have, but you just, I don't want to think about it. I'll, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. There's something else. And so guilt actually prevents you dealing with the thing that you should be doing. And it's the same sometimes with spiritual lives. I, I am very much aware that sometimes when people wander off from the Lord or wander off from the church, one of the things that stops them coming back is guilt. If I go into church, everybody will look at me and say, I haven't seen you for two years. Guilt. And guilt disabilitates us from doing anything about it. And the psalmist here recognizes that. But actually, for him, it's much more important that we have a conviction of God's grace, God's forgiveness. God is always graceful and forgiving, and we need that grace right now. That's why he can pray with confidence, Lord, turn our hearts, bring us back, because you're that type of God. You're forgiving and you're gracious, and I, I need that. You know, we sing that song, don't we, Amazing Grace? We know the words very well. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And those words actually sort of refer to the fact that we were saved by grace. When we became Christians, when we started our walk with God, it was, it was about, about grace. But you know, the verse that I'm, I'm, I'm always struck by is actually the third verse, which says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Now, what does that mean? It means that, that forgiveness that I needed when I first became a Christian, I'm going to need it every single day. I'm going to need to know that when I feel guilty, when I've failed, I can come back to God and I can say yet again, I failed, revive me, and he'll give me a hug. Guilt isn't going to do it. Only grace. And that's the center, I believe, of this psalm. And therefore, he says, will you revive us again? Not that people will now do their duty and obey the law and keep all your commandments, but that they will rejoice in you, that we will know your love, that we will feel restored and we will have peace with you. That's grace and forgiveness. And then the next part of the psalm says, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people. Now, here's the thought. It is vital that we listen to God. Sometimes when we pray, we do all the talking. We think prayer is about coming to God and telling Him about all the things that I've done wrong so He can forgive me, and then maybe telling Him about all the things that I need help with and all the people that I'm concerned about, and that's my intercessory prayers. Amen. You sometimes feel your prayers are like that? I certainly do. But that's not really a relationship. That's a, that's a sort of, I, I don't know, it's, it's sort of sending the requests in, isn't it? I will listen to what God the Lord says. Now, I think what the psalmist is talking here is not sort of I will sit and listen waiting for a voice to tell me go back to Egypt or, or, or go set my people free or anything like that. Actually, the listening that's much more important is what he says. I will listen to what the Lord says. 
And he talks about the promises that God makes. The promises that God makes. It's interesting that the Bible, particularly the New Testament, spends less time telling us what we should be doing and much more time telling us what God has promised, who God has made us, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And again, I think that is what the psalmist is saying. What I need to do in prayer is simply spend time maybe reflecting on God's Word and hearing again what God has done and how much He loves me. The Bible is full of promises, and some of you this morning need to hear them. Promises where Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises where Jesus says, I will be with you till the end of the age. If you repent, you will be forgiven. I have good works in store for you. I have begun a good work in you, and I will carry it out into completion on the day of Christ Jesus. I sent my Son that you should have eternal life, that you should have life in all its fullness. We're going to talk about that more next week. I have my, your name written on the palm of my hand. I called you before the world began. The Bible is just full of God's gracious promises to us. And the psalmist comes and reflects on those. He promises peace to his people. Now, that peace could be peace from enemies attacking them, but the word is shalom. It's that peace that we can find as we just come to God, as we know we're forgiven, as we know we're His, no matter the circumstances, being restored. You can have that right now, even today, if you just simply return and allow God to fill you. The end of guilt and that bigger promise, salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. It's an interesting word, glory. The glory of God is the presence of God that, that dwelt among His people. In the Old Testament, the glory of God was seen as the people wandered through the wilderness in the, the pillar of fire, the cloud, of fi oh, the cloud that led them to the promised land. When they got to the promised land, the glory of the Lord was in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where they could go into His presence. Then the glory of the Lord was in the temple where Solomon would make, come and the, the people would know that God was theirs because He was right in among the people. And one of the things that happened when the temple, before the temple was destroyed, is that they said the glory of the Lord left and we were dead. And of course, as we come to the New Testament, the glory of the Lord is found in the person of Jesus. He is the place that we come and we meet with God. We have beheld His glory, says John, the glory of the Father's only Son. And here is the point, the sign of glory, the sense of God among His people. All the people have to do is return. All the people have to do is open themselves again to the grace of God that forgives and embraces, and He will be among them. I firmly believe, as much as we need to look at mission strategies and outreach strategies and worship strategies and all sorts of things as a church, here is the greatest thing. If God's people will return to Him week by week, time by time, opening themselves to Him, then they will have peace and the glory of the presence of God will be among us. That people, when they come and they see us, will say there is something there. God is there. Because that's the promise that we're given. 
And then these last verses, which I'm not going to pretend to fully understand, but they talk about bringing things together. Faithfulness, righteousness, words that are all about doing the right thing, but left on their own can leave us feeling failures and guilty, are brought together with love and with mercy and with peace. Guilt destroys peace, but grace brings it back again. And the psalmist says, somehow, when I come into the presence of God, those things are reconciled. Sense of what I should do and the duty and the things that can make me guilty because I'm broken, and the sense of God's overwhelming love, the sense of His peace restored, the sense of the forgiveness of sin. And of course, we're told in the New Testament that those two things come together at the cross. Come together as Jesus dies, says, this is serious, there's a penalty, but my love is so great that I restore it, that the temple veil is torn, and you can have peace with God again. And it goes beyond that, verse 11. It talks about faithfulness from the earth and righteousness from heaven. Heaven and earth coming together. All the things as we look at the broken world that are wrong and are not as they should be, as we come into the peace of God, His desire is not just that we are put right ourselves with Him, but that whole world is brought into harmony with God's will in heaven. It's why we pray each day, don't we? The Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Looking for that day where God reconciles all things going to stop there, but I offer this psalm to you. Take it. Reflect on it. Pray it. You don't even need to understand it all. Sometimes just when you, when you, when you read something, it's not dissecting it. It's just hearing the reassurance in it. In fact, I know what I'm going to do right now to stop. I'm just going to read it again. Listen, to the Word of God and let it speak to you. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered their sins. You set aside your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before Him and prepares the way for His steps.